In a world where high-performance, zero-defect buildings are hard to find, two men are on a mission to disrupt the status quo. Welcome to the Enifis Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work perspective on the adjacent possible and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator here with my colleague, official agitator, friend and Yoda of most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, Sir Yoda. Hello, Yoda. Today's guest will be an inspiration to all practitioners. He graduated in 2002 from the University of Manchester in the United Kingdom with a degree with honors in mechanical engineering. In 2006, he became a chartered engineer in the UK and in 2010, a professional engineer in California. He's been a lecturer in MEP design at the Academy of Art University, San Francisco, and in 2014 received the Consulting Specifying Engineer 40 Under 40 Award. In the following year of his award, a mechanical engineer of the year from PME Magazine. He also sits on ASHRAE SSPC 55, which is Thermal Environmental Conditions for Human Occupancy, and ASHRAE TC 6.5, which is where I got to know Mr. John Williams. So welcome to the show, John. Thank you very much, guys. So, John, your uh, project list is pretty uh, impressive. Uh, a new international airport for Mexico City, Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta, Georgia, Porta Pettigrew in Mexico, Apple Park in Cupertino, California, Apple retail stores, China, Canada, United States, Newport Beach, Civic Center, the Shard London Bridge Tower Project, Northern Arizona University Applied Research and Development Building Flagstaff, and the list goes on. You have been a busy man. Tell us your story. Um, Well, it all started slightly by chance, really. I was living down in Kent in Ramsgate and about to finish my A-levels. And what do you do? So I decided to think about that and got into engineering purely because I wanted to do the scientific side as well as something that was a little bit more hands-on and practical because I've always liked getting to some sort of actual goal at the end of something rather than just a piece of paper. And so I went around a few of the universities in the UK and centered on mechanical engineering because that seemed to be the most general in terms of having a science basis. And then at the University of Manchester, they gave me this very handy little red book that they had, which listed all the companies in the UK at the time that offered scholarships. And so I took this little red book and I applied to every single company in the red book. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) And so, you know, and this was from all sorts of fields, you know, it was like aerospace, defense, and ended up getting an interview with um, Ovarup and Partners as they were at the time. And they offered me a scholarship and a period for the university to come back and intern with them every summer following a gap year. So sort of completely by chance, I landed in the the world of building engineering. And it was sort of the interview for that was actually quite a funny story in itself, because I was there meeting this guy. His name was Mike Edwards. And one of the questions he started asking me, I was like, I slightly recognize that thing he's starting to sketch there on that piece of paper. And it was a section through a building. And about three to six months earlier, 
uh, sort of been up worrying for my, you know, A-level mock exams <laughs> and not really sleeping like I probably should have been. And I was watching an open university program, which for those outside of the UK don't quite know what that is, but it's uh, basically university through the television. And it was an entire program on this low energy building in Nottingham. And so I learned all about this fascinating building. Uh, it was the Inland Revenue Building. And the guy interviewing me turned out to be the main designer for it. So we sat there <laughs> and chatted for about 20 minutes about me having understood this building from this show. And yeah, the rest is history, really. Did university and started back at Arup after graduating and then did London for about six years. And they said, do you fancy going to the USA? And I thought that could be an interesting challenge. And so I went to San Francisco. And then a few years later, really more for personal reasons, I sort of wanted a bit of a change again and to come to Mexico where, you know, it's Mexico is such an interesting country. It's on the verge of absolute booming um, and has been multiple times. And there's one of the things I noticed coming on my visits to Mexico is how much design there really is down here. People do really enjoy the design of buildings, but this level of sophistication available to in particular, the architects, isn't what you're necessarily used to in the USA or the UK. So there was clearly a market here. So I moved down and luckily met the company Parsons, who I'm with now, and they offered me a role as um, a senior project manager working for the new airport that's currently under construction. Wow. So did you move down speculatively or did you move down for the job? Well, I essentially moved down speculatively. I left Arup. They unfortunately had no work at the time down here and went with WSP, who agreed that I could be a, this remote worker living in Mexico, partially looking for work for WSP in Mexico City. And that's also when I was working on the Mercedes-Benz campus in Atlanta. And it was sort of quite, you know, geographically funny because everyone was a bit like oh you're the guy that lives in the foreign country <laughs> and it's like so <laughs> the, with the foreign accent exactly but it was me living in mexico which was luckily only about like a three-hour flight to atlanta whereas the rest of the team were all in san francisco and they had like a five-hour flight from atlanta and lived you know two time zones away. So it was a lot more convenient from Mexico City to work on a project in Atlanta than it ever was from San Francisco. Oh, that must have confused some of the Americans. Allow me living in Mexico, working on an American project. <laughs> oh, <Wow>. yes. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Especially one who doesn't even know the rules for American football. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll <laughs> <on that. laughs> it's chess with meat, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's interesting. So, uh, yeah, it warms my heart to hear you talk about the Open University because I did technical college and then when I realised I wasn't going to be a professional skateboarder when I got to 30, I thought, oops. So I went to, I finished off with the OU and then I went yep. to Greenwich for my master's. So I have a very soft spot for the Open University in the UK. It's, yes. uh, it's the place where people who were delusional or need a second chance go, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> On both counts. <laughs> but um, it's interesting also because I, I worked at Arup. I was um, recruited into Arup in uh, 99. I worked for a year in New York on JFK. So I know mm -hmm. what it's like to work for Arab. Arab was an interesting firm for me. It's someone, it's a firm I'd known all my working life, and then I sort of got recruited in to do a <clears> job. 
And it was fascinating. The reason I said yes to it was because I was just fascinated to see what it was like on the inside after watching it from the outside for 20 years. And it was interesting because they don't bid for work, right? Work just arrives at their door because they're Arab. <laughs> People just yes. knock on the door and say, what do you like to design this billion-dollar building? They go, yeah, okay, we'll probably do that for you. Yeah, and we'll think about it. Yeah, we'll think about that. <laughs> so, you know, it's fascinated me because they didn't bid for anything, yet like work just used to wash over them like a tsunami. And yes. then you have a problem on site. Like, yeah, I had a problem with the fire engineering at this project. And I, I have office said, who can I speak to about that? And they go, oh, you need to speak to this guy over there. And you go over and see him, and he's the guy who wrote the book for the yes. fire engineering you have the problem with, right? That's the way Arab is. They put this, and also when you leave, it's like, you know, it's like they have this chip inside you, right? And you feel super guilty when you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is probably the reason I gave them one year's notice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, I've John, to- yeah, John, were you around when uh, Arab developed the uh, Project Ove? Were they modeled a uh, lifelike building. It was taller than the Eiffel Tower, but it was in the shape of a human. Were you around for that? Um, I remember reading about it, but personally, I wasn't involved in it. Yeah, it's a. I mean, it was a. I mean, that's a, again going back to the scale of the company. Where well, they'll, you know, give a couple of young engineers with uh, computer modeling skills. You know, here's a few million dollars. Just design a building in the shape of a human, but it has to be like 40 stories tall. Yeah. And, and let us know how you how that works out. And as it turns out, the graphics for it were phenomenal. And we've used it in our in our lectures because, you know, they looked at the structure as the bones of the body. They looked at the electrical systems as the nervous systems, right? The air handling system was respiratory system. The, the All the arteries and veins was the heating and the cooling system. And it really was a good example how, architecture and and humans form are really tied together but i think that was um for me it was that was the analogy i always had in my head particularly mm. when trying to describe what i did to people who knew nothing about what we do yeah because i sort of got bored when i sort of first came into the industry on the mechanical electrical side saying oh i work as a building engineer and the first thing anyone says to you is oh so you do structures then and I was like, no, I don't. <laughs> and then the next question is, oh, you changed the filters then, right? <laughs> exactly. Also, you yeah. like panic. And, <laughs> and taking it to a biological sort of analogy works for people. Yes. Because people do understand that, you know, right. that all living things, whether it be, you know, an actual, you know, animated organism like a, you know, a human or an animal or even just a plant – you know, structure is one thing, but people understand the difference between sort of a tree that, you know, is not alive anymore and a living tree. So it was using that analogy of, you know, what we do in building services is, you know, basically putting the life inside of a building. You know, we make the building breathe. We make the building light up. You know, we make the building you know, have some sort of level of sophistication and smartness through its control systems. And so when I went that path, people were a bit like, oh, so there's a lot more going on, is there? And it was a good way of sort of like trying to get that description across. And then I remember the the Arab model you were talking about coming out. And so that was a very sort of graphic representation of it. But I think the analogy works with or without the sort of 
the very attractive image in your head. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna. I'll link an yeah. image to that in the show notes because that is very impressive. It's interesting as well hearing you say that you sort of wound up in building services by accident because again, it's like me. I'm a commissioning guy. And I work in building services. No one wakes up at 18 and goes, I want to be a building services engineer. You know? Exactly. <laughs> no one gets in a car crash and says, get me a commission engineer. I feel bad. You know, <laughs> Not unless they're in some kind of psych war. <laughs> yeah, not unless they're on some good drugs. <laughs> so yeah, the other thing that fascinates me about your story is this, right? So you know, if, if we go back in time to when you were at school, and I lined you up with 10 of your contemporaries, and I said to someone, right, pick out the guy that's going to work, going to get, get a degree, become a professional engineer, work in the UK, work in America, work in Mexico. Go, pick that person out, right? They wouldn't be able to yeah. do it. So, yeah, it's always a source of fascination for me that you can never spot the people who are going to get that breakout velocity, right? That, yes. You know, there's nothing wrong with staying in London and working the whole career in London. Nothing wrong with that at all. But what is it that drives people? You and I have a sort of a similar thing, really, where we've sort of broken out of our normal orbit and got into other yeah. orbits, right? And I've, had a, I've bounced around the globe myself. But, you know, what drove you to leave the warmth and comfort that is the UK? <laughs> <laughs> I think part of it is slightly just the opportunities that presented themselves so a good deal is luck you know luck is luck is like anything yeah but also it's just that desire like i remember being in london and you know i'd worked on a couple of towers there already and i was working on the shard at the time and it was like some people like to call me hyperactive which is probably true and it was my, my boss literally said to me you know would you be interested to move to San Francisco? And I was like, well, why not? You know, there was just no reason why not to do it. <laughs> and I suppose once I'd made that move and, you know, I'm sure you understand the complexities with that in terms oh, of then yeah. having to go back and learn the imperial system that, you know, we've tried to abandon once <laughs> <laughs> and the different culture. Yeah. Just also how people, you know, interact and get things done is extremely different. And so I enjoyed that challenge going to California. And also my the buildings I've worked on were all very much ingrained in, you know, what was initially, you know, the green building style, then the low energy building style. And then it eventually turned into sustainability somewhere along the line. You know, California was a real center for that. And I don't think I was even fully aware of that at the time, but sort of having that opportunity to be around, you know, the folks in Berkeley and to really sort of get a deeper understanding of what was happening in, you know, low energy and sustainable building design was such a unique opportunity. But again, it was sort of purely formed by luck rather than, you know, great wisdom on my part. Yeah, I've been the beneficiary of a lot of great time and luck, I have to say. (laughs) (laughs) But I think fundamentally it's being open to the opportunity. Yeah, right. there's a difference, right? Yeah. So the opportunity passes in front of several people, maybe only one will step forward and take it, right? That's the difference. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. And I, 
embrace embrace the pain i always say embrace the pain exactly and it's sort of it's it's allowing yourself to be outside of your comfort zone for that little while yes like moving to mexico now has been different challenges yes even if we just start with the units they're still quite sure which units they use here sometimes it's imperial sometimes it's metric so luckily i know both now Um, sounds like canada (laughs) (laughs) so that sort of part of it but it's also you know you come here and you've got to deal with a culture that is incredibly different where there's a lot more hierarchy in terms of what people are used to dealing with yes and sort of from my age perspective has been quite interesting for their mix because typically here the hierarchical structure is just the guy that's been doing the job the longest, not necessarily who has the experience. Yeah. And here, because there haven't been that many low energy buildings, it's been quite an interesting sort of like culture to have to really sort of absorb and embrace to sort of be like, yes, I might not be the oldest person in the room, but you know, you can have a bit of faith that I have done some of these things before. And so that's been like actually quite um, an interesting sort of challenge to sort of get across to people that, you know, it is sometimes about, you know, the technologies and innovations have moved on extremely quickly. Like I remember when I started sort of back in, you know, whenever it was at Arab sort of 20 years or so ago and, you know, even then, it was just starting to change, but the first person the architect would call would always be the structural engineer. Whereas it was about five or six years into my sort of career that, you know, that stopped. You know, all of a sudden, it was the mechanical engineer they wanted to speak to first mm-hmm. because they wanted to understand how they were going to get through these energy codes. They yeah. wanted to understand what the implications were to their systems, services, so on and so forth. Where And that was sort of like an interesting step sort of like for what we went through in Europe and USA was very yeah. similar. Whereas, you know, coming here, it's probably about 10 years behind in that regard where, you know, the structural engineer is still king. And for certain, you know, for certain very important seismic reasons, Mexico City is very specific to that issue. But they also know here, like they have, you know, very, you know, significant air pollution issues just with the population of the city, which is now, you know, bounces somewhere between 20 and 30 million, depending where you draw the boundary. That's you know, insane. It has, <laughs> it has the energy issues. It has water issues. So within Mexico itself, there's a real strong driver to get more people involved in sustainability and really getting a passion for it. And I think before I came down here, I'd met a lot of those people who were touched by, you know, sustainability in different parts of their their worlds that I really felt that passion has begun here. And in fact, actually, um, today, um, which is quite ironic for our call, is uh, the first day of uh, Green Build's first ever Mexico exhibit happening today, right. uh, which is the end of the week. And so that's being fully integrated between uh, SUME, which is the local sustainability sort of chapter for USGBC here in Mexico. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. You know, it's funny, Adam and I have talked several times about, you know, operating business because we both have owned and sold businesses. And, you know, we were talking about hierarchies and we, in our business, had a very flat 
organizational structure. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we never saw, you know, silos. We never, we just, we saw that in order for us to achieve what we need to do quickly and professionally that we needed a flat structure. And so that's how we grew our business was a flat structure. And then we, we sold the business to a small Danish company called Danfoss and uh, who aren't small at all for those that know the name. <laughs> and in their North American operation, the new, uh, the executives there, you know, forced us to go and restructure ourselves into a hierarchical system. And within two years, it collapsed, you know, yeah. and I think when we when we look at sustainable, the term sustainable and what that means in terms of business practices, that the flat organizations are are critical to that. I mean, we I don't see sustainable, the philosophy of sustainability being a hierarchical thing. I, it has to be integrated. It has to be flat in order for it to, to, to work. It has to well, be multidiscipline, <clears throat> right? Yeah. Well, I think we can even go beyond that. You know, it's like, to me, it all comes down to collaboration and how collaboration is allowed. As I said, you know, it was like, you know, back, you know, in that sort of five years into my career stage, they call the mechanical guy. But it's like the mechanical guy isn't enough anymore, you know, because then we're just really thinking about energy and sort of like the fundamental uses, which were mainly HVAC related. But now to get the real sort of like the deep green cuts that you need, you do need mechanical, electrical, plumbing, you know, a sustainability expert, the landscaping person, you know, the architects. Interior designers. Or specialists, you know, who can, you know, really help you out. Actually, the, the, the one that always gets me that's always forgotten is the acoustician been thinking about an interesting problem lately and it's sort of like you know i'm working sort of like with teams here that are a lot more very much in uni discipline sort of cells so to speak and they struggle with that sort of collaborative nature and then one of the things i've been chatting to with a sort of a close friend of mine who's more on the sustainability sciences world is like you you mentioned like cross-disciplinary or is it, you know, interdisciplinary or where they want to take it in pure sustainability science is transdisciplinary, where in transdisciplinary, there's no walls whatsoever. But most importantly, they try and come up with a way of, you know, really facilitating the conversations and the discussions such that nobody ever feels that they are, you know, putting a face forward to represent a certain idea so that it just allows completely free speech. And then the the person that's leading such a session or facilitating it has to come up with some sort of strategy to filter out and funnel through the best ideas from this from this group of different experts of specific disciplines. Now, I don't think in the building industry we've made it that far yet, but I think it's a real goal that we can get to in terms of having, you know, the best buildings out there. Because at the moment we, we still occasionally will, you know, fall back to our, you know, our, you know, our, our sort of our comfort zones, whether we like to or not, to say, you know, OK, we will just do what we have to do. You know, whether that be, you know, heating or cooling a building, getting the lights turned on. But the other thing that's key to all of this, and I think this is where your flat structure comes from, is these conversations have to be happening all the time. And in particular, mm. up front in the design. You know, nothing, nothing here can happen sort of later on or afterwards. 
So that's sort of something that is, you know, in terms of what happens in a project's development, how do we allow ourselves to make those decisions in the right time and in a timely sequence? Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Because the there's when you talk, I love I love that new word you've just introduced to me. It's new to me, which is transdisciplinary, i.e., no walls between disciplines. Now that concept yeah. is integrated design process, I guess, right? To translate that, but um, it's to, to is the nth extreme. Yes, to like the absolute, you know, Tourette's level. I can say what I want, and that's it. No filter, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let's call that Tourette's design. That's my that's my version. There you go. <laughs> now the issue with that is cultural, right? So I've worked, I worked, I've worked in the Spanish culture before. I did a job in Spain, in Tres Cantos, Spain, for Glaxo way back in the day, like in the early nineties. So I go there, and I'm I'm representing Glaxo. So I call a meeting, and I say we're going to meet at three. They'll go okay. I go to three. I'm the only guy there, and then I go yeah. maybe there's some standing. So I call another meeting for the next day at three. They go okay. I go there. I'm the only guy there. So I, I asked someone, well, what's going on here? He says, oh, no, no, you've got to say you want them on time. So I have to say 3 o'clock at the <laughs> English hour, then people will come. <laughs> so I learned was, you know, there's a hierarchy. There was one guy I wasn't acknowledging his awesomeness, which was one of the problems. The other problem was I wasn't absolutely clear that I wanted it on time. And yep. the word for that was on the English hour. <laughs> Changed my life for the rest of my job. That did. <laughs> so stop well, me talking you, to myself. <laughs> you can imagine that I have quite a few similar stories here in Mexico, which comes from a very Spanish culture yeah. in certain regards. <laughs> so also in, in yeah. I would say in Mexico, there's a lot of status issues, right? There's a lot of class issues. There are everywhere. Mm-hmm. They're just more obvious or not obvious, right? So yeah. you know, transdisciplinary or Tourette's design. You know, how does that work in a Spanish culture where there's hierarchy and seniority abound everywhere? I think it works because there's there is a passion. Right. Mm. People want to want to see Mexico as as Mexico can be. You know, Mexico has so many opportunities. It has a wealth of resources, a wealth of abilities. You know, it's like I work with you know all of my team is Mexican, and they are fantastic engineers. And it's it, it's just about sort of like educating and talking about how things can be done differently. And at the end of the day, I don't think it matters about what class somebody's in or any of those sorts of things that live outside of the work or the office place. Yeah. You know, people want to see Mexico do well. People want to see, you know, Mexico as a country you know, grow to the success levels that it really can do. And I sort of, I definitely feel that on the project I'm working, where, you know, everybody from the MEP side and from the sustainability side, you know, is looking to use, you know, all the best technologies, you know, lean on sort of international firms as necessary to bring in sort of more specific skills, but then really adopt them and absorb them into their daily practices. Now, I suppose one of the things that will need to happen and, you know, it needs to happen, I'm sure, in every sort of everybody's life. It becomes generational almost. Yeah. You know, it's like the moment I sort of see here, you know, that the touch paper has been lit, you know, and people want to do it. You know, that there will always be people that believe, you know, how things have always been done are the best way. <laughs> um, but we, we know that in every culture and every life. Yes. Right. You know? yeah. <laughs> but I believe there's enough 
emphasis and onus here that they know that the eventual goal and the true, you know, the real outcome is what's going to stand the test of time. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I'm interested, just to, just for our listeners to put it in context, so Mexico City has a population approaching 30 million. The total population of Canada is 37 million, I believe, at the moment. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> and Canada's the second largest country in the world, FYI. Yes, so, land mass. Yeah, mm. land mass country. Almost awesome, number one, by the way. I'm sorry, as a Canadian now. But anyway, you know, the scale of that as a mega city, right? So Mexico is one of the emerging mega cities, which is a, is a global trend, right? Yes. So you're designing an airport. I've worked on, so in 1986, I'm old, by the way, this is what you should know. And I worked on King Khalid International Airport in Riyadh. So that was a massive, uh, it was a bit ahead of its time. It was designed to be like a tent structure, which translated to a, a massive architectural shell. And that was done with district cooling and uh, ventilation coming in at the ground and yeah. using stack effect. So fast forward to year 2000, I work on Terminal 4 in USA. Massive, like, it's designed to look like a wing, but the effect is just a massive hall, you know, using yeah. stack effect. District cooling, air, right? So that's not a lot of change there. Architecturally, it looked awesome, you know, Engineering-wise, it was the same. We had Peter Simmons on the podcast a little while ago. He's very famously for being one of the designers on Bangkok International Airport. And he managed to implement a radiant cooling solution yes. and displacement ventilation, of which I am a huge fan. So my question to you is, in a very long way, what are you doing down in Mexico? <laughs> so here the designers have chosen to go for displacement ventilation only. Okay, that's a start. Um, I like that. And, and, and the main reason for that here is really the climate is fantastic. Yeah. Like, though we do have pollution issues, and that's one of the things where really trying to do some deep analysis now as to what is the best air infiltration strategy we should be proposing for the airport, because that becomes a bigger issue when you have such outdoor air pollution. Yes. Like, they, you know, it's, it's, it, everyone talks about indoor air quality or indoor environmental quality for, for a building. But, you know, in, in a place like Mexico City, and I don't know if you know, but the city is surrounded by mountains that causes this inversion effect yes. that pulls the pollution down to ground level in different times of the year. And so because we have that condition, it's like, how do you improve the internal uh, quality of the spaces when the outdoor is so bad? And it's sort of given us some real challenges as to what should be done there. So we're looking at a number of technologies now that we think are best to implement over the long term period to make sure people can really enjoy that space. Now, from now, the, the, we had conversations as to whether that should be, you know, potentially, you know, radiant or just displacement for this building. But with the amount of hours we can use um, just an airside economizer from, it makes a lot more sense here that you can just blow the air in as and when it's needed, assuming the building has enough shading and other bioclimatic design features um, as it does. So that, that's sort of what took us down that path. And I think it's definitely a good solution for it. But it, I think what a lot of people forget about Mexico is, uh, or Mexico City, is we are about a mile and a half up in the sky. Yes. Um, well, so one of the interesting factors there is, you know, the air here is about 20% less dense. So it changes a lot of those calculations that mm. you know, people 
typically have to do in terms of calculating fan energies. And really, you know, these cities, you know, a mile or more in the sky don't have a huge amount of technical backup support at the moment in any of the codes and standards, <laughs> which has been quite an interesting sort of challenge or indeed in the softwares for calculating the psychrometrics correctly. So that's been another challenge that we've been looking at to sort of really understand, you know, from an energy perspective, is this really the best decision? Yeah, it's been very hard to make those decisions quickly because you've really got to go back to some of the first fundamental principles of, you know, the, you know, the building science and the building physics to really make sure that what we're doing here meets all those things that we are naturally tuned into saying as engineers, that's the right decision from day one. That's really interesting because the solution for bad yeah. indoor air quality is more outside air. Right? Yes, exactly. And, uh, <laughs> when you're in when you're in Mexico, that can be a bit of a problem. Right? Yes. <laughs> so getting that balance right and the filtration has been a real a, a real judgment call. And how that ties in with the control systems is something that you know I think we will be refining and working on. You know, all you know a long way through construction to make sure that we're getting all those sensors in the right place, so that we we yeah. really understand what we're bringing in, in from outside. Also, you right. got pollution, but it also from planes. Sorry, Robert, go on, Karen. Yeah, no, no, but it also emphasizes the importance of making sure that you have a tight structure and with the openings controlled. You know, doors coming in and out, right? All the, all the, all of that access, but. Ultimately, with such bad air quality, you want to have a low infiltration rate, and that any air coming in has to be filtered. Yes, that's, exactly. That's a that's a key component, right? Yeah. So, and, 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 that, and that comes brings us to another point that, again, is one of those things that, you know, we are faced with different challenges here. You know, the construction industry for Mexico has, you know, for a long time been, you know, this is how we build things. You know, it's a lot of it's punched <laughs> windows. And we all know that the problems with sealing those sorts of construction types. So a lot of the the what we consider now pretty standard commercial construction techniques in terms of, you know, um, curtain walling or other sort of facade systems, uh, sort of having to like come into the market to really help that air sort of infiltration, exfiltration story get improved. Right. But this is, again, something where the contractors are having to become more sophisticated than what they've worked with previously you know mexico has the biggest sort of stockpile of cement in the world yeah. and you know, sells it everywhere so concrete is a big deal here people love to pour concrete you know because it is it's a national resource so moving to some of these more sort of advanced innovative technologies for the facade systems is sort of a little bit of a challenge at times to convince people that is the best way to go maybe the solution should yeah. be a heavy mass concrete solution right um, somehow you've got to make it beautiful that's the tricky bit, yeah right? yes <laughs> i'm thinking of the twa building in in jfk right yes you know, exactly something like that because uh, i've worked on a very low energy heavy mass concrete building with radiant heating and cooling in canada it worked but you know mm -hmm. making that look pretty and non-industrial was pretty damn tough <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah so Adam, we we have a few more minutes left, and I I wanted to ask John about his 
advice for the young engineers coming out? John, you've embraced the world of modeling software. And that's something that you don't get taught in school. I've got to be thinking the software that you're using is not something that you see in school. And I know that for a fact because you were a chair of one of the research committees here that I sat in on uh, for one of the ASHRAE publications, Research Project Software. Can you maybe talk a little bit about modeling software, skill sets that that the young engineers should be working on, and where do you see modeling going? So I think modeling is going to reach a point where things do start to come together. Like, I'll be completely honest, and I'm sure you guys are the same. I'm not sure what they learn in school anymore. (laughs) 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 It's probably very different to what I did, uh, which was all still blackboard and, you know, learn the calculations. But I think one of the things I found most interesting is I was sort of taught, you know, from HVA perspective, three fundamental pieces of software. The first being sort of comfort software. So, you know, in terms of trying to design spaces with, you know, either peculiar shapes or, you know, lots of glass with lots of sun gain, you know, will these spaces truly actually work? Because often, you know, the bulk mass air temperature doesn't really tell you anything. So those comfort softwares really taught me a lot about understanding whether a space was going to be successful. And then I spend a lot of time then in sort of two or three different energy softwares. Now, the energy softwares themselves would also work for different systems in different ways. We use sort of some quite simple software when we were first trying to do the PARTEL, which is the UK Building Regulation for Energy Compliance, sort of back in the day, just to get sort of basic sort of almost prescriptive compliance that, you know, your fans are going to use a certain amount of energy, your HVAC system covers the basic loads, and then other softwares like IES's virtual environment have taken this on. And then, you know, everybody was always waiting for DOE's Energy Plus to be, you know, the one that was going to nail it with a nice smart interface. And then the other sort of major strand of softwares that we've all been getting more familiar with is obviously BIM and Revit. Yes. And you know, I think I'm still waiting for those three major strands, especially for me- mechanical design of buildings. And you can e- easily add to it for you know lighting design with radiance and plumbing design for, for their pipework systems. You know, how do we truly allow BIM because it's really it really all turns into building information modeling to have these add-ins for calculation such that people can use one piece of software because often it's jumping between the different pieces of software that you know honestly becomes a skill in a way yes. i was working on a building in um in san francisco well in down in cupertino and you know to, to do that building we had to do comfort in one system we did most of the energy modeling using um, is virtual environment but that wasn't sophisticated enough for the internal systems within the building so we did that with energy plus and then we had to post process it all with the results from ies to come up with this total number and so 
you, know, you, you end up having to use like, you know, up to four or five different pieces of software to even really start understanding how you think a building will behave. And that takes a lot of experience of the different softwares and sort of like also just the, the fundamentals. But even though I love the software, I think one of the things I'm keen that the young guys never miss out on and, and girls, we have many girls these days, is, you know, Nothing beats doing some hand calculations. Amen. You know, somebody Amen. being able to put together a spreadsheet and have, okay, this tells me basically what I know I'm going to need. This allows me to do some sort of conceptual understanding of the spaces of the designs so that you always have that back check. It's far too easy, even with the individual softwares, where you can sort of understand to a closer, refined level. But as we move towards this, you know, potential, you know, this marvelous software that does everything, the biggest risk I see is that, you know, we could potentially de-skill younger engineers from being able to back check their own work. And I think that's something that we have to make sure as an industry that we really sort of like keep everybody engaged as to what is technically important and what is sort of like just extra beautiful analysis that doesn't really give us any benefit at the end of the day. Because, you know, nobody wants to do analysis for the sake of doing analysis. You know, we are in this industry to build a building and for that building to be comfortable and you know, have good lighting and to, you know, for people to fundamentally want to be in it and more productive within it, as opposed to having some, you know, some lovely colors on a diagram that will be forgotten. You know? That was uh, <laughs> yeah. a famous the- statement oh, by Peter right. Simmons. He called CFD colors for directors. Yeah, that's right. You know, when I I think about, you know, my, our practice here, you know, three formulas, one calculating the load or the flow of energy through an enclosure, calculating inside surface temperatures, and being able to determine flow rates, either air-based or fluid-based. It's the same formula for the, you know, for the flow rate stuff. Three formulas that you can use, simple stuff that allows you to back check you know, when I, and so I look at all the fancy programs that are out there, and I, the ultimate, at the end of the day, I want to know three things. Yeah. What's the flow through the enclosure? What is the inside surface temperature? And what do I need to do to replace that flow, either with air-based or fluid-based systems? Exactly. Right? And, and, and we just want it to work. Right, right. That's, that's the important thing. <laughs> yeah. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. If you're enjoying this podcast, we need your help. We're not asking for money, just a minute of your time. Our goal is to make the Edifice Complex podcast as relevant, educational, and useful as possible. By having good ratings, we can reach the widest audience. Therefore, our request is two small things. If you haven't already, leave us a review and rating on iTunes. And... Subscribe to the Edifice Complex on YouTube, even if you normally only listen to the audio version. These two things will help us immensely. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. Thanks for your time, and now back to the show. You hit some really important things there, right? So back-checking your work, one of my early Obi-Wan Kenobis mentored me on that. He said, always back-check. Even if you think it's right, 
take a minute and check it, right? You yeah. can do that with a simple calculation. And you know, the other thing is it's we design it to work, as you say, right? Software yeah. has the nasty habit of stealthily de-skilling you. Yes. To the point where oh, you're yeah. almost like, you know, it's like Stockholm syndrome. You're just you're you're like a cult member at some point. You're a virtual they are, you know, virtual reality cult member. You know, yeah. You've got to be able to step out of that and have a practitioner's fundamental check. Yeah. I'm not saying that because I'm old and I can't do virtual environment because I can't. <laughs> but, you know, there is, yeah. it does horrify me a bit when I see total devotion to the software outcome. Yeah. And, and, and I think the, the other thing that sort of like I found very interesting in my career, and I think I've been very lucky to have these different strands is I was never pigeonholed as either the modeling guy, the the guy that can go and sit in meetings and chat yeah. to the client, or the person who can be on site doing construction work. And I think it's having those different, you know, sort of outlooks yes. and understanding what the different needs are from, you know, concept with the architect to, you know, construction at the very end, you know, coming into the commissioning phase and the client is wanting a building that works, that, you know, every single decision you make along that path can affect your end eventuality. So we've got to make sure that all the young engineers that come in are given that breadth of skills so they can truly service their clients. Yeah, agreed. So you're making, you're you're designing and constructing a massive, let's say, airport. It's going to have a shelf life of 30 to 50 years, right? Yeah. Now, I'm a big fan. I'm, a, I'm in the current cargo cult of the Internet of Things. So my belief is that the, the cost to monitor performance and measure and make adjustments is falling exponentially, right? Yeah. And I think that's going to have a profound effect on building operation and design. Now, if I was designing an airport today and I was god of king of the designers, I would be putting as much measurement capacity into that building via the BMS as possible. Is that a strategy you're going with? With a yes, no, we have. Um, well, the building is going for lead platinum, and right. so that helps us a lot of the way in terms of even the credits we picked. We quick, we picked to go for the advanced commissioning credits and all the advanced energy credits right. and also the advanced water credits based on we know the issues that, are, that exist really here in Mexico. Yeah. So we do have, you know, we have all the water metered down to different levels and different areas of the building. We are metering power through a dedicated power management scheme. We have that also one of the things that's interesting for me about a, an airport terminal building is just the number of stakeholders. Yes. Now, and, and that is something that's so fundamentally different than most buildings. Like a lot of, yeah, a lot of commercial buildings can have different users, but they're all sort of doing pretty much the same thing. You know, if you've got 20 stories of office, you know, you've got, you know, probably 18 stories of all commercial office layout. You know, yes. some of them may be a bit dense, some a bit lighter, but you can make a pretty good guess. Whereas in a terminal, you've got every sort of user under the sun you know you've got the airlines with their offices you've got you know catering facilities 
facilities, beverage facilities, you've got the baggage handling systems, you've got all sorts of other back of house spaces, you've got government facilities, security facilities, and all these different users have different needs, requirements and usages. And so really doing that, in particularly on the power side, because it, it does come down to the electrical, that most of that user will see the variation on. And elsewise, it's really the HVAC, but we're monitoring that at the units that are generally dedicated per different user group area. And so using those two systems, we'll be able to, you know, really sort of get these different users to look to optimize in the future. Now, one of the most interesting schemes we have been developing down here is the U.S. Department of Trade and Development, the USTDA, gave a um, an, an award to do a sustainability management plan. And so what's been super interesting about this is this is actually for the airport in operation before the airport's even opened. So we, we are now writing the plan of how not just the individual buildings, but the entire 5,000 hectare site will develop sort of between its opening date and sort of its full master plan development that takes us out to about 2065, that we make sure that this airport stays on track to always be, you know, one of the most sustainable in the world. So I think the fact that, you know, we are thinking now during construction about how operations should be run and not just in the major facilities that is so easy to be distracted by but also these other facilities that also be very significant such as hotels we've got cargo facilities we've got you know maintenance operations that will all keep needing more and more users and usages how do we make sure that you know those future operators because we don't know who they are today, you know, h- how do we keep them on target on a, on a goal so that, you know, that initial ethos that comes from, you know, typically the master planner or the architect, you know, and that was, you know, three or four years ago already, doesn't get lost somewhere in the process. Hmm. I mean, the numbers are just staggering for an airport on that scale, serving a city on that scale, right? It's just yes. ridiculous. Yes, it, it essentially is a small city. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we're coming up to the end. We always have a few closing questions for the Obi-Wan Kenobis that we interview, right? Okay, so good. Consider yourself Obi-Wan Kenobi for the next 10 Thank minutes. Thank you. So what, would you, what advice would you give for architects? Like if you were given, like you parachute out this job, you're parachuted onto a brand new project and you have power, and what <laughs> would you advise the architects going forward? You know, or any new graduating architect, what's the one thing one could change their perspective or life i would just encourage the architects to always ask questions and not just ask questions of their seniors but to ask questions of their consultants to you know to really get into that team mentality all the best projects i've i've worked on have been often when you know i've sat down with an architect for an hour and we've just discussed what the building systems should be or could be yeah. And then the architects can go off, you know, do do what they do best, which is, you know, sort of like more fundamental design work a lot of the time. And but 
if they've been given those fundamental constraints, you know, you're going to end up with a far better design in the early stages than you ever would than if the architect just goes and does their thing without asking those questions first. Yeah, that's good. So yeah. same question for engineer, a, gradu- <coughs> a graduating engineer or an engineer on a new project you're working on. So I suppose but, but one of the things that kicks into my mind with this is sort of where some of life is today. You know, we've all heard about it, you know, the millennials, you know, <laughs> Generation Y. And I've, I've had a few of them in my time. Yeah. And it's, you know, don't think you know everything. Mm, and, yeah. you know, when you're asked to do a task, you know, sort of grab it by both horns, you know, see the task as being an open-ended opportunity to complete the design if you really want to no senior engineer above you is going to be disappointed if you do more work than you're asked to do (laughs) (laughs) that is awesome yeah no one gets fired for over delivering right (laughs) exactly (laughs) there's a life lesson guys just take that away yeah That's See, really I'm good. such a misogynist. I said, guys, guys and girls. So, this very quickly, a subject dear to our heart on this podcast is women in engineering. Not, mm-hmm. I, don't, I deliberately do not use the word STEM. I'm talking about yep. engineering here, right? So, I think Arab were all very progressive with this. There was a lot of female engineers there. So, any any particular advice for women in engineering? I think for women in engineering, it's it is a challenge. You know, there, there, there's no two ways about it. It's yeah. like there's still and I even find sort of part of this, just even just being a bit younger, it's like the client wants to see, you know, a gray head or, you know, a few wrinkles around the eyes in their engineer. Yeah. And so it's very hard for, for women to sometimes give across that perspective of how is their experience? You know, did they really get their hands dirty and, you know, pull up their sleeves to understand, you know, what it takes to connect two bits of copper? You know, it's that yeah. sort of mentality that, you know, people don't necessarily get. But I think what I've seen is that women do have it harder. There's no two ways about it. Even though I've had my challenges, they have more challenges. And I think that they are often smarter than a lot of, you know, the guys in the room. And I think what needs to sort of happen is that, you know, really it has to come from the engineering side. You know, it has to be the leaders in engineering today who, you know, give the the younger and, and sort of middles and juniors, women engineers out there, a lot more face time with the clients. So the clients can have, you know, that confidence in them that they, they truly deserve. And there's no question about that. But it's like the client doesn't necessarily know that unless they're sort of given that at this point. And so we need to do this this generational change again. And this is something where I think this is a world level, yes. you know, the, and I have some fantastic women engineers on my team here. In fact, my lead for storm design is a, is, is, is a woman engineer. And the things that she knows in her head automatically and her attention to detail are things that I miss in a lot of my other engineers on the team. Yeah. So it's, a, it's really absorbing those other skills that are, are there. 
Yeah, I agree with you. It's harder to build one engineering, but in my experience, every one I've ever met has been absolutely awesome. <laughs> 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 and formidable sometimes because yeah. they do break through that perception barrier sometimes, right? Exactly. Yeah. And I, I think that's actually one of your points. It's like sometimes you've got to be seen to be a bit forceful, particularly yeah. when you get to the construction end of it. Yes. And yeah. it's harder for women to be seen as positive if they're seen to be forceful. Yes. And that is something that, you know, sometimes it's like, and an, I've actually sat there in some meetings and I've been like, you know, come on guys, everybody shut up, listen to this woman. Yeah. She's the one that knows. And if anybody speaks during her, we're both just going to leave <laughs> because, you know, if you don't allow the person with the knowledge in the room to speak because, you know, you don't see them as being forceful enough, then that's a problem for the project. And that's a problem for everybody sat in that room. It's not the woman's problem. And that's something that, you know, as a lesson, we all have to learn and take away. Actually, yeah, that's well a great said. point. Yeah, that's well said. opportunity cost to the project and to the team, right? If you're not listening. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well said, actually. Very well yeah. said. I like that. I like that as well. You know, it's hard to be seen positively if you're being forceful. But sometimes, as a woman, you have to be forceful, right? Exactly. But it's yeah. it's something that is – but often then from a personal level, they're looked down upon. Yeah. And that's what isn't fair. So it's it's this balance that, you know, women are given from their, you know, their stereotype, you know, in terms of our, you know, our biases, that if, if a woman is seen to be forceful, that there's something, something not quite right there. And that is something that, you know, we as people have to either get over or the other way is that, you know, you know, we as, you know, men can all take a leaf out of women's book and say, well, why do we have to shout and argue about this one particular topic rather than actually just trying to get to the best solution for everybody involved? Oh, yeah. The yeah. management by shouting culture, that is just so prevalent in our business. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a skit on YouTube. It's a, com a comedy skit, and, there, and it's a game show. And, you know, so the question gets asked, and the one guy who uh, answers first and correctly is marked wrong because the guy next to him was louder. He was, yeah. you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes, Stu, you're right, but unfortunately you're wrong because Timmy over there was much louder than you were. Yes. <laughs> and I like him. <laughs> and, I, and I like him. <laughs> yeah. Hashtag life's not fair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the real world. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's sad. <laughs> but those are, that's some great words uh, to end on because, yes. you know, and certainly women that do step up, understanding the challenges, do well. Uh, ultimately, I think, you know, I mean, we've had, we, I don't know, John, if you had a chance, but Adam and I interviewed an engineer from Mexico, Cecilia. And we brought on a psychologist to join us in the in the interview just to work through some of the things that that Cecilia faced. And, you know, she was Adam and I were concerned at the beginning. That's why we had April on it, that, that the interview would would have been a negative thing. But you know what, Cecilia, all the stuff that she went through, she was positive. She was motivated. She was passionate. She had clarity in her thought and where she wanted to be. And it was actually one of the most inspiring interviews that we've done. Yeah, good, good. Awesome. Yeah. yeah, she was great. 
Okay, John, look, we're going to wrap up now. Where can people see you on social media? Have you got a Twitter handle, a website where people can see your work or follow you or track you like <laughs> a stalker? Yeah. Where, can, where can people stalk you? So I've got, uh, I'll put your LinkedIn link in the show notes. So have you got a Twitter handle? Yes, I do. I don't use it very often. And it's a JG double D-O-U-B-L-E and then a single U. So JGW. Okay. To match my initials. <laughs> That's good. Awesome. Engineer. Engineer. And, uh, is, is there a website for the project where people can have a look at it? Because, you know, with so, some of these big projects have webcams and websites because they're so enormous you can see them from space type thing. There is. A, I'll have to dig that one out for you and I'll, I'll email that afterwards. That's, Great. Um, and I'll put that on there because, I mean, what an interesting project. I, big capital projects like that fascinate me because these are intergenerational projects, right? You're making oh, decisions yeah. that are going to outlive you. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <I> do. <laughs> yeah. Could do. Yeah. <laughs> until, until we get to synchronicity and extend life, which is probably not far off. That's another podcast. Thing. <laughs> Anyway, John, thank you so much for coming on. That was awesome. And I, yes. I find that project you're working on absolutely intriguing. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been a great, great fun and nice to sort of reflect on some of the things you do. We don't, or we probably don't take enough time to do that either in our careers, yeah. do we? That's very true. <laughs> All right. Hope to see you in Houston, uh, John. Unfortunately, I won't be making it this time. I've got some meetings that have come up, but I will right. see you in uh, the winter meeting. Excellent. All right. Thank you very Thanks much. Again. Thanks again. so much, guys. So what did you think of John? That was a great interview, actually. Yeah. I, I mean, he brought up some really good points, several of them. One of them, I, which I really like, was putting life into the buildings. You know, when you look at the electrical and the mechanical engineers, that they actually do put life into the building. I mean, there's the architectural form, there's the structure, but those are uh, static elements. But when you look at lighting systems, security systems, the plumbing systems, the HVAC systems, that's what brings the building to life. I really thought that was a good way of looking at the profession. Yeah, you think, right, you go into a building. So most airport buildings are impressive, just for sheer scale. And most of them look pretty nowadays, right? Yeah. So you walk in, but the minute you walk in, that that fades, right? You're in that envelope. And what matters next is how you feel about <laughs> your comfort, your space, your air quality. Yeah. Everything, the experience becomes prime at that point, right? And that's the undersold thing in design. The experience of coming up to that building is one thing. The experience of being in it for two or three hours, which you inevitably are <laughs> if you're yeah. playing international, that yeah. is in the realm of the building services engineer. Yeah. Yeah. And he uh, made some other good points, you know, how the evolution of, you know, green and then sustainable, how the focus has moved not away from structural engineering, but a, a more focus on the mechanical and electrical system. So, you know, in the in traditional building, it was the architect and then he would s hire the structural engineer and the two of them would work out the building. And then when that was all done, then they would get a hold of the mechanical and electrical guys and say, okay, now make our systems work or make our building work. But now it's, it's, it's more integrated where the mechanicals are brought in, the electricals are brought in to look at the environmental systems and the energy systems. And that's actually the way it should be done, you know? It was interesting. The thing that I thought about when we were talking about that was the incentive structures there have changed, right? Yeah. So the, the architect is actually very well incentivized now to have a wider team around him early because yeah. of code requirements, certification requirements, and award requirements, right? You know, there are awards for green buildings now, right? Who doesn't want yeah. one of them on your wall? 
Sure. Uh, so yeah, on your resume, you know, right? It was before, sort of back in the day, sort of in the 80s and 70s, it was about how it looked way more than how it operated, right? Yeah. So what did you think of the term uh, transdisciplinary, a.k.a. care of Yoda, Tourette's design strategies. Yeah. So when he said trans, first of all, so I, there's a guy I follow on Instagram who does these great imitations of the Kardashians, and it always starts with the guy who had the sex change, the dad. Right. <laughs> right. And he always talks about being Bruce trans. Jenner. Yeah, Bruce Jenner. Yeah. He said, oh, it's good being a woman. It's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to put yeah. the link to that guy in the show notes. So when he said trans, I immediately went to that. And then yeah. when he explained it, I thought, yeah, it's like, because I've worked with some star architects, right? And in those meetings, everyone's on their best behavior. They're sitting to attention. They want his attention. It's like, you know, it's like having Darth Vader say, okay, you may now speak, right? Yeah. But what you need is the, the Tourette's thing where you can just say, what's in your mind? You know, he could be pontificating about something. You can say, dude, that just won't work. Yeah. There has to be the environment where the, the mechanical electrical engineer has to say, I'm sorry, Sir Norman Foster. <laughs> but that just is not going to work. So let's just stop that right here, shall we, and talk about it, right? But, yeah, when you're in a room with Sir Norman Foster, is it possible to say that? Yeah, and that's not a and that's a lesson not just for the building design process, but for all businesses that yeah. having people as yes people, yeah. you know, where, where they're always yes, we can, yes, yes, yes. And the guy that comes along and says, no, you can't. Uh, he's the sand in the uh, in the ointment, right? But you have to listen to those people. And it's yeah. and I, you know this from running a company, and I know this from running, yeah. running a company. The most valuable, not the most valuable, but one of the most valuable people on your team is the guy who challenges you. Even though you're the owner, the boss, you're signing the checks, you want people to tell you when you're off base. Yeah. That's the check. And that's why you hired those people. You know, you, and I think that's one of the fundamental differences between a good business and a bad business is that the good business is owned by somebody who recognizes that I'm not going to hire people who are dumber than me yeah. because then we're always going to be at the most dumbest company going. If, if everybody under me is stupider, dumber, less motivated, we're, that's a recipe for failure, oh, right? Absolutely. But if you hire guys that are smarter than you, more passionate than you, you know, more motivated, you want them to tell you when you're off base. That's why you hired them. Yeah. <laughs> so let them do their shit, right? So there's a humility that's required, right? Great leaders are humble. Right. Because they know, can so, take advice. Yeah. So good architects and good engineers, I mean, one of the one of the good traits that you can develop is make sure you don't surround yourself with yes people. You want people who will tell you, challenge you, tell you when you're wrong, or tell you that, you know what, we can maybe look at this at a different angle and uh, optimize it, right? And be open to those suggestions. It was interesting hearing him talk about Arab, because that was my spirit, Arab. It was the most collegiate, sort of like intellectually stimulating place I've ever worked. You know, you could not help but bump into geniuses everywhere you went. It was ridiculous. I felt felt so dumb when I worked there. It was so so, so inadequate, but it was one of the great work experiences of my life as well. Yeah. He slipped in a bit of in- wisdom that, that I want to bring out. And that is, and I kind of paraphrased, I said, you know, who's holding up progress is the person stuck in the status quo. Yes. Right. That's a teacher and- out there. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, and, he, and he mentioned it very, and it, you know, it was in the conversation, but you know, he talked about, um, you know, people doing the same thing over and over again and because that's the way they've done it. And yet those are the individuals that hold up progress. Right. Yeah. 
You know what? I just I thought we should get some t-shirts going. That'd be a great t-shirt. Really <laughs> I thought his words on modeling software were really good. It reminded me, there's a guy, a professor, Mark Bomberg. He's kind of a legend within the building science world. And he taught, he's taught all over the world. And But when he was at the University of Saskatchewan, and he was telling me this at a dinner, he, he would tell the students, you can't touch the computer until you know the answer. Yeah, that's great. Then you're just checking your answer right. I like that. Yeah. He says any engineer worth his salt has an intuition of what they, what the solution is when faced with a problem. And you're only using the computer to facilitate the calculations, but you should always know what the answer is before you sit down and use it. I thought that was brilliant. That's profound because the exact opposite is happening. I'm seeing everywhere I go. Yeah. So you probably really uh, associated with the, his comment about the multiple stakeholders in airports, eh? Yeah, I've done a lot of airports, not by design, just the way it's, it's panned out. And uh, they are super challenging jobs. As he said, like the stakeholders, you know, like the job I did at JFK, it was just ridiculous because you've got like the uh, immigration people there, you've got the police there, you everyone's there wanting everything and wanting it for them. They don't care about the other bits the flight information people, and then, you know, so commissioning that building and integrating all them systems was one of the most challenging things I've ever done. And they are unique. And just if you say, like, JFK, for example, right, that airport's going to be there 50, 60 years, and then it'll be knocked Mm -hmm. down, that building will be... So that thing is going to be consuming energy, consuming resources forever, right? Right, yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. And that's some, you you know, so a bad decision can compound... For 20, 30, 40, 50 years, right? Right. Conversely, a great decision can compound 30, 40 years, right? This is the, yeah. why the design process is so important. And this is why somehow linking the design process and consequences to long-term operation, I think, has to happen. Now, people will say the P3 process is doing that. It is to a large degree, actually. That is one of its successes, I think. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's so easy to be in your bubble and like, okay, I'll just copy and paste, get this out, and then forget about it. And that thing sits there for 30, 40 years, consuming energy, right? That's the consequence. Yeah. Uh, he also made a comment, which, and I didn't mention it uh, because we didn't, we didn't have a whole bunch of time to get into the politics that right now. So this is 2018 for, you know, these, these podcasts are going to live in, in forever. So the year is 2018, and the U.S. political system is under turmoil, to say the least. Yeah. Very much an internal. Let's put up, you know, the walls. We're gonna we're gonna look within our belly button, and uh, that's where life exists. But yet, John, working in Mexico, receiving awards from U.S. recognized organizations, is just another illustration how sustainability has no borders. Right? You can put up all the walls you like around a political system and an economic model, but ultimately buildings that are built in Mexico or whether it's in Venezuela or in Canada, wherever around the world, has an impact on the world. And I think despite the efforts of political will to you know, shut that, that world down, they can't. They never will be able to. That's because engineering and science has no borders, right? You can't. I think the global economy is so interconnected now and people are so interconnected and ideas are so easily diffused. You cannot put your borders up anymore. You can't yeah. be an island anymore. It is impossible to be an island anymore unless we have yeah. a major event that shifts technology back 50 years. But that airport is unique. What I can't be realized is we're having that conversation, you know, indoor air quality, Mexico City, right? Yeah, yeah. Island in the sky, that airport, 
surrounded yeah. by mountains that create massive air quality problems. Yeah. You're at an airport which has, by definition, massive air quality issues, right? You'll normally wind up with uh, special filters to for anything airside, right? You're bringing air from airside. They have to have uh, carbon filters. You know, the, the filters where they filter out all the smell and that. Yeah, and then, the order. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember what they're called. They cost a fortune. I do know. And yeah. so, you know, your control for temperature is possibly not, and comfort is possibly not as important as your control algorithm for indoor air quality. Yeah. So there is a hierarchy there that is sort of inverted, right? So normally most yeah. airports control for uh, temperature, humidity, maybe PPM, right? Now, if I was just without thinking through too much, if I was designing the control algorithm for that building, it, you know, air quality, you have to somehow have a measurement of air quality, then occupancy PPMs, then temperature, yeah. then humidity, then control maybe. I don't know, right? But there is some, that that is not going to be a copy and paste solution, whatever they implement there. No, and so, you know, if you think about air quality, so you're, not, so you're going to have to, you know, filter out particulate matter, yeah. and then you're going to have to filter out gases, and in those gases, of course, are going to be some odors. So those three things right there, and then you've got humidity control and temperature. So, you know, when we talk about heating, ventilation, air conditioning, the AC, I've always thought AC was the wrong term. It should be CA, conditioning the air. Because when you say AC, people automatically think cooling, right? Yeah. But the reality is it's CA, we're conditioning the air. So in the terms of the odors and gases, you know, all of the different absorptants that are available, like you can't just say like, okay, we're going to put in a carb activated carbon filter because the activated carbon filter will work on some gases, but not all gases. Like formaldehyde, for example, is not, is not quite, uh, I mean, it does work, but not as great as some other materials. So the engineering of the filtration system is not, as you said, not a copy paste. That is a that is an engineered filter, because they'd be looking at okay, what are the in Mexico City, you know what? Let's let's you know do a long term study or take data from a long term study that says okay, this is what's in the air, and we we don't want that crap in the building, so we're going to filter it out, and so then we have to engineer our filters based on that, right? And the cost of them filters, man, the cost, total cost of maintenance of them filters. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. You'd have to have a yeah. ticket tax of $5 per head just to pay for that probably. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, in your world of the commissioning, right, and yeah. then recommissioning systems, part of that is going to be looking at, uh, you know, the, the pressure losses through those filters, what oh, that has, because there's, there's an implication on energy on that. And then plus those things have to be regenerated, right? It's not that they, you know, you, you take those things out and you have to replace it with a new device. So that means that every gas filter has to have a standby, Right, because you're going to take the one out, yeah. put the new one in, and then go get the other one regenerated, cleaned out, and then bring it back to the site. So when they're bidding on the jobs, you know they have to allow for those replacement filters. So it's interesting. The answer to that problem, I think, is a massive living wall somewhere. Right? Yeah, I mean, maybe. Design, yeah, I'm fascinated by this job now. No, no, it's u- unique. I mean, Lee Platinum's hard at the best of times, right? Yeah, yeah. And with its unique design challenges, that job is fascinating to me. I hope he said, uh, when we get the link for that, I'll put it up and watch that place because I know yeah. how hard airports can be. But uh, Yeah. So what did you think of his answers to the to the question? If you had advice to, uh, oh, you know, Ark, what, yeah. His first one was ask questions. Yeah. What do you think? What do you think of that? I think that's right. Ask questions. That. When I when I started back in the day in the early eighties, there used to be a thing on some drawings. There was a firm in the UK called Hayden Young who was 
been bought out now, but they were like the gold standard of MEP contractors. And they always used to put a note on a drawing, if in doubt, ask. In other words, don't put this freaking thing in unless you're sure it's right. So what they yeah. were saying, it's a bit like the Japanese car production line. If you think something's not right, stop it. Stop don't it. Don't yeah. just forget it, right? There was some yeah. power in that. And at the time, for a long time, they were the premier MEP firm. Now, I'm not saying it's just down that one thing, but that was an example of the culture they were trying to you know, imbue, right? Yeah, yeah. So I love that. And that's so because I, I came into the industry as that was fading out. I still saw that and was exposed to that. And I've always carried that with me. You know, if in doubt, ask. Yeah, I, I don't know if our audiences, I mean, some will appreciate the, how important that is because when you put that kind of a statement on there, you're basically saying, we take responsibility for this project yes. to the extent that we're saying to you that you have the power to come back to us. If something's not right, we want to know about it because we're going to take responsibility for it. So many drawings have. You know, these are illustration only, you know, and basically, you know, Weeks you're on your own. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, if you, you know, it's not our problem. If, if what we design doesn't work, it's your problem because yeah. it says right on the drawings, you know, that's a different, those are completely two different statements. See, the weasel clauses yeah. on drawings and specs drive me nuts, you know. Yeah. Shall be this and anything else we can't think of, you've also got to cover, you know. Right. Yeah. It's in every clause. So that is just BS. Yeah, not limited to, and shall include, but not limited to. So that's the one, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was written by a lawyer. Yeah. Uh, and if you put that in your, if you put that in your spec, F you is all i got to say to you, <laughs> now I've retired. Because <laughs> you are a asshole if you let that go out in your spec. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's you taking responsibility for your, and yeah. that's what professionalism is all about. Yeah. Would, um, his comment on engineers for young engineers is, I mean, we anybody that's got no hair or gray hair, we learnt it's important not to think you know it all because you don't know shit. <laughs> Even when you're old and gray and bald, you don't know shit. So, no. you know, his words, don't think you know everything. What do you think yeah, of that? I like that. I like that. It's a, it's a humility thing, right? Because it, it is so easy when people, you walk in like, you've got the gray hair, you've got the experience, and they look at you and you think, yeah, I'm just awesome. <laughs> I'm the man. <laughs> <laughs> and you wouldn't be human if you didn't think that for a little bit, right? <laughs> yeah. But the yeah. trick is the real professionals get over that and yeah. allow their mind to open to, you know, that the nerd in the corner who's just run the calcs while you were sitting there pontificating and thinking. You can see <laughs> the confusion coming over their face and you think, oops, have I just said the wrong thing, you know. Yeah. Now uh, yeah. a narcissist just powers through and shuts that guy down, a real leader lets that guy speak. Okay. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. See, I'm so programmed to deal with men in my business. I always say guy, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just something you grew up with. I always try and catch myself doing that, but it's hard, right? Because just about 90% of every person I've ever interacted with in my work life has been a man. It's ridiculous, yeah. really. His, uh, on that same question, he made another great statement, which was no one gets, or you think, I think you paraphrased, no one gets fired for doing more than asked. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, you want to you wanna get promoted. Yeah. Just do great work. Yeah. You know, someone who worked for me said, look, Adam, I did this, and you know what? I went a little bit further. I ran these calcs, and this looks great. What do you think? Am I going to fire that guy or girl? No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to think you're awesome. 
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Maybe you're having my job. I might have to control you a little bit. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no. But you know, that's that's the secret, right? If you want to do well, excel. You don't yeah. have to do the basic. Do do more, right? Over deliver. Yeah. It's another T-shirt, another T-shirt. Yeah, if you want to yeah. do well, Excel. Over de- over <laughs> no one gets fired for over-delivering. <laughs> and then the last comment about women, I'm glad you brought that up um, because that is a, a area that we are passionate about, getting yeah. more women into the field. He made some really good points about, you know, the necess- that what, it's going to take some a couple of generations to get through this. But he did make you know some comments about women are pay attention to details. He had one engineer that he works with that, that the detail that she had in her brain was phenomenal. He did say that oftentimes or more frequently the man maybe I'm putting words in his mouth here, but that women were smarter or that he had women that were smarter in his in his team than the men. And I thought that was because that's been true for me too. That's my experience you know? completely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that the women engineers tend to be smarter than male, male engineers. What? And part of it is they had to work so damn hard to get to where they were, right? That's what Margaret Thatcher used to say. She said, to, to, to do what I got, or what I do, you have to be twice as good as the next best man around you. Yeah. And that was back in the 70s, right, where that was absolutely true. What you yeah. said was interesting, though. Hard to be seen. If you're a woman, it's hard to be seen positively without being forceful, right? So if yeah. you're like... To get noticed, you got it's a, it's almost a catch twenty two. To get noticed, you got to be forceful, maybe over aggressive, and then people think, oh, oh you know, yeah it's, yeah, it's hard to see that positively. But it's such a dilemma, right? It's such a dichotomy. You gotta sometimes. I I don't blame women for being forceful and like elbowing their way in. They have to sometimes. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. And he and he made one probably one of the most profound statements on the whole interview relating to that was that it's not the woman's problem. No. It's the man men's problem, you know. And, and as soon as men grow up, um, <laughs> get over you know, themselves, yeah. yeah, and get over themselves, you know, they'll be able to embrace women in the engineering team and, and get and understand the true value that they bring, their perspective, their knowledge, their skills. You know, they worked as hard, or like you said, twice as hard as as men do. So stop getting in their way. Yeah. You know, like that's just. Ah, yeah, it's uh, and so it isn't the women's problem; it's the male problem, and we've talked about that before. And we and that, and I think one of the things that we need to do as an industry is to teach the male engineers the these important aspects, these cultural aspects that we're faced with challenges. I think right? so. And it, there is an element of generational stuff here, right? As the baby yeah. boomers start to leave the industry, I think things will change for the better in that department, right? There's a yeah. there's a there's a again, it's a bit of a catch twenty two. There's a lot of experience leaving the industry, right, and a lot of mentoring leaving the industry. But there's also a new attitude coming in behind it. Yeah, which is a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, oh. On that positive note, I think we yeah. need a t-shirt section to our website. Is my main conclusion here. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. I like that. Okay, man. I shall. Uh, that was a good one. I shall see you on the next one. Adam, again, always a pleasure, man. Take care. See ya. Bye. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.